0: I didn't read a lot of nonfiction myself until I was an adult, you know, and even then it kind of took me a while, but then I found a few books that were just so compelling. They've helped inspire me to think about how to make nonfiction really compelling and engaging and funny and, um, you know, blending kind of personal stories with facts and science.
1: What Were You Thinking? The podcast that goes beyond the pages of the books we love. I'm your host, Dana Goldstein, and I invite you to join me as we ask authors to share the story behind their stories. Isn't the sound of the orcas just delightful. It's kind of musical. Before we get into today's episode with Nora Nickham, I would just like to invite you to check out my substack. This is my new newsletter where I do brain dumps about things that are on my mind or what's happening in my life right now, personal and writing and anything that sort of crosses my mind that I think I just want to write about. It's been a great exercise for me. And if you want to check it out, you can go to danagoldstein.substack.com and check out the free newsletter. There's also a paid subscription available if you are so inclined. Thank you very much for tolerating my little plug there. This episode, I talked to Nora Nickum, author of Superpod, a middle grade nonfiction book about orca whales. I realized when I was editing this episode that I was all over the place in this conversation. We would talk about writing nonfiction, and then I would ask her a bunch of questions about whales. Then I would switch back to exploring her writing journey, and then we would end up talking about whale health again. It was a whole lot of back and forth, but I just, I decided to just preserve it as is. Anyways, I hope you enjoy this episode, and... I am pleased to introduce you to Nora Nickham, author of Superpod. Well, congratulations on Superpod. It's your debut nonfiction for middle grade.
0: And it's also my debut book. Yes.
1: All right, Mm because you have written for uh, various magazines, always with the intent to educate kids about our environment and our oceans. Okay, so before we get into Superpod, which was... Brilliant, by the way, beautifully written and so much information for everybody of every age. Congratulations on that. Can you tell us what your day job is really? Because it's so relevant to what you write.
0: Yeah. So I get to work at the Seattle Aquarium, which is pretty awesome. I don't work with the animals, but It means that when I'm stressed out with my job at my desk, you know, I can go over and say hello to the otters and the northern fur seals and the octopus, some of my favorite animals. Um, So my job is leading the ocean policy work for the Seattle Aquarium. So... You know, going to our Washington state legislature in Olympia or to Washington, DC, and speaking up for policies that'll help protect the ocean and all the awesome animals that live there. So, kind of trying to be a voice for all those creatures that don't have a voice in our political world, but, you know, changes in policy can really help protect them in ways that are important. So, that's what I do.
1: It's like a dream job, right? You're doing great things for the environment, you're educating people, and you get to walk through the aquarium whenever you like. There's no excuse for staying tied to your desk.
0: No, it's pretty awesome. I love going in early in the morning before it opens, and it's really quiet, and the animals are just hanging out. And yeah, that that little um, chance to walk through and be inspired is pretty. Unforgettable. I'm a big fan of
1: cephalopods and whales. So your book ticked so many of my boxes. I enjoyed every single page. Tell us about your author journey. When did you first decide that you were going to, was it, a, sorry, was it a conscious decision to write content, nonfiction content for middle grade and younger audiences?
0: So before I started working at the Seattle Aquarium, I was a consultant and did environmental consulting, but it, it just consumed all of my waking hours, you know, aside from parenting weekends and nights. And when I left that job to work at the Seattle Aquarium, I both had more brain space for creativity. And I had the source of inspiration with all the animals at the aquarium and all the kids wandering around asking amazing questions. So that's kind of when I really went for it. And I started actually with picture books and I got my agent with a picture book. Um, but then you know, also really love, I love reading middle grade books, both fiction and nonfiction. And really, you know, I think some topics just warranted diving in a little bit deeper, but still kind of with kids in mind and the wonder and curiosity that kids bring. So now I'm doing both picture books and middle grade. And how did you find your agent with that picture book? What was that process like? So there's a really fun uh, competition contest on Twitter called picture book party, hashtag PV party. Nice. So I entered with that. And what I love about that is you enter with just the first, um, I think it might have been even just 50 words or 70 words of your story. Just a picture book needs to grab the reader right away. Absolutely. So you, know, you don't even enter with the whole thing. So I entered with that and um, then was a finalist. And then there's an agent showcase. So agents see that for all the finalists and then express interest and you can submit the whole manuscript to them. So I found my agent that way, which was just wonderful. And I'm really glad that she's also happy to have me kind of expand my horizons and work on more than just picture books. Yeah. And what was that first picture book about? So we're still trying to find a home for that one. It was called An Underwater Guide to Starting a Rock Band, and it was um, talking all about underwater noise and, you know, animals that make noise, how animals hear noise and are affected by noise. So it's a a topic that is important, but I think also fun. So hopefully that'll find a home someday. Um, But ocean animals and nature and conservation and those kinds of things tend to feature large or small in most of my writing. Yeah, I
1: noticed that. (laughs)
0: Um, All right. Tell us what Superpod
1: is about and why you decided to write this wonderful book about our orca whales.
0: Yeah. So there are these amazing orcas here in the Pacific Northwest, actually go all the way up to Alaska and down to California, but we tend to think of them as local here in the Pacific Northwest. They're called the Southern Residents and there are 73 of them they are critically endangered, and they are just amazing. And I've been watching them from shore since I was five or six years old and just love them. They're magnificent and playful and fun, and people are learning more about them all the time. And so I wanted to kind of share that fascination with these animals but also inspire people to do things large and small to help them recover since they are facing extinction but there's a ton of hope and a lot of ways we can help them. So, yeah, I was excited to write about them and kind of share that combined message of urgency and hope with readers. There was a couple of
1: big takeaways for me. One was oh, thank you for sharing that website where you can uh, listen to the song of the whale really if you're curious about that website it's www.orcasound.net and also i never really considered the impact of salmon and salmon fishing and damming waters that salmon need to go to spawn and and how that affected the whales Like, is this something that, you know, people, you people you've encountered are surprised by they must be or maybe I'm just like my head head is in the sand and I'm thinking, we're just killing our oceans on a on a general level where it's a slow death, but i never I never really thought about the salmon tell us about that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So the salmon are the main thing that they eat. And it's just amazing that they know, you know, different kinds of salmon go back to different rivers around the region at different times of year. And the orcas know all that. The grandmothers and the mothers know all of that and pass that information on. So they know to go to South Puget Sound near Seattle and Tacoma in the fall and winter to get chum salmon. And they go up towards Vancouver, BC to get Chinook salmon in the summer and um, so that's just amazing. But yeah, there are fewer and fewer salmon available for them. And so one of the reasons they're not doing so well is they're not getting enough to eat. And that's because of a lot of the things you mentioned, fishing, um, dams on rivers that block salmon from being able to go up to spawn and then just habitat being destroyed. Um, so, you know, there's no longer trees along rivers to keep the water cool for salmon Um oh. So there's a lot of issues and there are other threats to them, but getting more food is kind of the number one need. I remember when I was a kid
1: hearing about the salmon spawn, how it was such a, it was like a huge event. Like there were, I, I don't know. I mean, I would say it in my kid's mind, it sounded like there were millions of salmon swimming up river and spawning. And I, as an adult, uh, and when I had my own kids and we were living in BC, I was like, oh, we could actually drive now to go and watch this amazing event. But the world has changed. Mm-hmm. The populations are dwindling and we just don't see that kind yeah.
0: of um event anymore are you, is it starting to change there are definitely places where it's getting better and one of the stories in the book is about the middle fork of the nooksack river where they did remove a dam and now yeah. salmon are coming back so fortunately you know in the past there was this wave of let's build more and more and more dams for all different reasons hydropower flood control um water drinking water provision but now, actually, more and more are being removed, and so that's just a huge opportunity to restore that habitat for salmon and other species. So there are some good news, things like that. Um, there are other places where the trend is not going in the right direction, but there are rivers all around the Pacific Northwest where you can go see salmon spawning, and it's pretty awesome. I mean, the numbers are not as large as we would like or as they were in the past but it's still pretty fun to go watch.
1: Did you do writing as a kid? Did you like, you know, make up your own fiction when you were when you were younger?
0: I always liked writing. Yeah, I was it took me until, you know, just a few years ago to feel like I could put myself out there for critiques and, you know, get feedback and really make it stronger. So I did a lot of writing when I was a kid that was more just for me, I would say, but I always loved yeah. it. And and
1: how did you find your place writing for a younger audience? Cause that's not easy. Like, especially when your adult life is populated with a job that requires you to come up with policy, which is very different language from middle grade. Mm-hmm. How mm-hmm. is, how did you do that? How did you make that transition?
0: Yeah. Well, I, I think probably like a lot of children's book writers, I have a young child, so, you know, it's inspiring to read picture books two-year-old child. She's now six, so she's starting to get into chapter books and early middle grade. So that's definitely inspiring. And I think even the policy thing, there is a connection because with the kind of policy work I do on environmental issues, you need to translate hard science for policymakers who are not scientists. Obviously, they're not kids, but you still need to kind of um, make it digestible and engaging and relevant to someone who's not a scientist. And I feel like writing about science and nature for kids is kind of a different kind of that translation. And it's really important. And I
1: feel that it has changed over the years. And I want to talk about nonfiction for kids because it's gaining momentum, finally. Mm Woohoo! And I remember the nonfiction when I was a kid was encyclopedic and dry Mm -hmm. and boring and complicated to read. Do you find that that middle grade nonfiction is evolving?
0: Totally. I mean, I love reading it now. I I didn't read a lot of nonfiction myself until I was an adult, you know. And even then, it kind of took me a while. But then I found a few books that were just so compelling. You know, The Soul of an Octopus by oh, Cy Montgomery. Yeah, love that book. Just like life-changing and a major mentor text for me. And then I know um Dana Stoff was on your podcast and her book about cephalopods, similarly just so engaging. So I feel like those, those are adult books, but they've helped inspire me to think about how to make nonfiction really compelling and engaging and funny and um, you know, blending kind of personal stories with facts and science. And um, so those kinds of adult books help me think about how to write in a good way for kids, in addition to reading middle grade books that are coming out by great authors. Mary Boone does great middle grade nonfiction, and Sarah Albee and Patricia Newman are great inspirations for me too, just bringing in, you know, humor and just making things fun to read. Okay, just a quick aside.
1: Mary Boone is the author of many young adult and middle grade books. Her latest is Bugs for Breakfast. She was on the podcast in season one, and I will post a link to that episode in the show notes. Sarah Albee is the author of a whole bunch of nonfiction books for middle grade readers and for younger readers. Her latest book is called Troublemakers in Trousers, women and what they wore to get things done. So that should indicate the kind of tone that she writes with. And Patricia Newman's latest book that is recently released is called A River's Gifts, The Mighty Elwha River Reborn. And it's gorgeously illustrated and a beautifully told story of the history of the Elwha River and how dams changed the path and the livelihood of that river and the people who relied on it while you were putting together this book like did you you, what made it so wonderful as you already indicated was it read like a narrative more than just a factual book because you brought in your own experience which I still think you're super lucky because to get to watch whales just do their thing is so magnificent
0: Bringing in those personal stories was important to me, but I wanted to find the balance. Like, I don't want to be bragging about, oh, I got to see whales, but I do feel like those were really life-changing things. And for me, you know, one of the most fun chapters to write, it was hard, but one of the most fun was the one about why do whales breach? Because it let me go back to one of those memories I had of watching a whale breach early in the morning with my dad from shore, just one of those things that burned into my brain. There was no one else there. And the whale was so close to shore and breached. And I started thinking about like, why do whales breach? And why do they breach when they do? And there's a researcher at that lighthouse at Lime Kiln State Park, who's been studying that for decades. And one of the, there are a lot of fun reasons why they might breach, you know, from what we can know so far, based on the data, it might be that they're feeling playful. It might be that they want to communicate by making a large, loud splash because other whales are farther away and they can hear the splash. Um, and they also do it when they're waking up. And so kind of going back and talking to my dad about that memory, he remembered that the whales were all swimming in a slow line, a, like a real long line of whales coming up at the same time, which is a strange thing to see when you first see it, but it usually means they're sleeping. And so the fact that we saw a whale breach after that means it was probably doing the wake up breach, like stretching when you get out of bed in the morning, um, which is really fun. And I got to last year, I visited my daughter's kindergarten class and I showed them videos of whales, orcas breaching and asked, why do you think they do that? And it's so great to just hear all their reasons. You know, they were saying. Maybe it wants to look and see where it's going and make sure it doesn't run into anything. One of the boys said, maybe it's, you know, it must be to impress the girls. I was like, are you really thinking about that in kindergarten already? And, um, but the researcher at the lighthouse, Dr. Bob Otis had emphasized to me that, you know, kids have, kids are really good at observations and often come up with really great ideas that scientists can use. And so I, I like being able to make that connection. For sure. Like I when you said that, you know, you can walk through the
1: aquarium and I and listen to the kids asking the questions, I thought, oh, what a great way to get source material because they don't have the filters to hold back yeah. on the questions. They don't have the insecurity about, oh, that's gonna be a dumb question. No. Right? And they've they have, have this true one. desire to learn and know.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah, I love it. So while you were writing Superpod, was there anything that you yourself learned that you didn't know before?
0: Oh, all kinds of things. Yeah. It was really great to be able to ask all the experts questions. You know, like I remember I really wanted to know whether a salmon knew when an orca was chasing it, you know, could it hear the echolocation clicks or you know they do flee so why are they doing that and one of the scientists told me it was probably because salmon have this thing called a lateral line on their side where they can sense changes in you know pressure and water movement so they're probably feeling you know there's something big moving around near me and i need to get away but they probably can't hear the echolocation clicks which also explains why There are other orcas I talk about in the book that are known as transient orcas or big killer whales that hunt marine mammals and marine mammals can hear all those things. So those orcas have to be super stealthy, but the southern residents can just go about their normal chatter and calling and singing and partying and um, while they're hunting. So, you know, it was I think doing the interviews was probably my favorite part, just being able to hear the passion that all these experts have for these whales, but also ask all the things that I've been curious about for a long time. What else did you learn? Um. So the, well, the fact that they don't, whales don't need to drink water. So they get all the water they need from the fish they eat and kind of the process of breaking it down in their body hydrates them. So that was interesting. Um, and then there's just new research coming out all the time. And so There's a scientist with the Center for Whale Research, Dr. Michael Weiss, who had just put out some research on orca friendships. So he looked at drone footage and looked at, you know, who, which whales were hanging out together the most. And they would breach at the same time or come off air at the same time or just swim like right up against each other. And he kind of mapped out those relationships and found that orcas have best friends you know, they tend to be similar age and same sex and they hang out a lot, even if they're not related. So scientists already knew family was super important. These whales stay with their mothers for their whole lives, but they didn't really know that they also have friends, you know, outside their siblings. And so that was just really, you know, it's fun to write a book as new research is coming out. And especially when it's, you know, really fun research like that. Yeah. And
1: it's never ending learning in super Pond because, you know, one of the things I had read about years ago, but completely forgot about was the role of the grandmother. Mm-hmm. Right. And like, this is, it's such a human trait that extends to, to whales. And I was like, oh, of course it would extend to whales. Why wouldn't it? So tell us about the role of the grandmother and how yeah. like, l- listen up people. You got to respect grandma because she knows where the good fish is at. <laughs>
0: It does. Yes. And I know, Dana, you have a book about menopause, which I haven't been able to get my hands on yet. But orcas are, I think there's maybe one other species besides humans and orcas that go through menopause. And I know, so, that. You know. It's amazing. So these. Yeah.
1: Okay. Permit me a minute or two of speculation here. Now, orca whales and pilot whales are the only other mammals that at this point in time appear to go through menopause. But let me be clear, menopause in women is very different from menopause in orca whales. I mean, it's impossible to track hot flashes in freezing cold ocean waters. I don't even know how they would measure that. And I'm pretty sure orcas don't have facial hair suddenly. But scientists have been tracking 500 whales over the years and watching how they age and menopause in orca whales appears to manifest once the females are no longer able to reproduce and their menopausal shift goes from being a mother to being a grandmother
0: yeah so the female orcas you know they can live to their 90s at least um And they hold all the wisdom. So they know where the salmon return at different times of year and they lead their families there. They help teach the younger ones how to hunt the salmon. They help babysit for the younger calves while the moms are out hunting for fish. Um, So they, they're just really important. Um, and kind of that matriarch, you know, wise grandmother role has been shown in so many different ways, um, And they're, you know, they're the ones who are leading the pod. They're out in front showing everyone where to go. Yeah. And it's, it's surprising how old orcas can
1: be Mm -hmm.
0: like, what's, what's the oldest on record? So there was one named Granny and there's some, uh, I don't know, they're still not totally sure how old she was because when they started doing the census, um, she was already around. So they were guessing at her you know likely age at that point there are some estimates that she could have been well over 100 you know but at least 80 something if not over 100 and the oldest one now is ocean sun she's in her 90s so yeah they can live a long time and uh, like how do they age do we know this like is that
1: like you know do they just sort of keep on and then things stop working like how do they- how do they age? Like that's ridiculously old, right? Like, yeah. you know Birds lose their feathers and dogs just kind of get about much slower, but how, what, what, how do orcas age? Can I ask that question 14 more know. times?
0: I don't know. I was just reading about how elephants, you know, one of the ways they age is their teeth don't work so well anymore. They, they get ground down so they can't eat most of the food, but I don't know with orcas. I mean, I know they stop reproducing in their 40s ish. um, And then they just keep going. But I don't know kind of what is the biological trigger for when they can't just keep going anymore.
1: Yeah, it's not like we can uh, (laughs) gauge that easily. Anyways. Yeah. 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 Um, All right. Let's talk about fear. Are children afraid? I know some adults are afraid of orcas. And that's in large part due to media um but do you do you think that there's
0: unrational fear around orcas you know i haven't come across that myself and with my daughter i feel like she's not scared of any animal until someone tells her she needs to be like she's not scared of bees or sharks or anything and um you know having it is really interesting though that the whole about orcas being captured from the wild and put into marine parks was terrible and is one of the reasons why they're doing not well now but it's also one of the reasons why people aren't so scared of them anymore because people have had more contact with them and have seen how awesome they are so i'm sure there are still people who are scared of orcas but i haven't it doesn't seem very prevalent anymore have you seen that movie blackfish I have not. Somehow, I'm. T- I don't think I can handle it.
1: <laughs> no, it's it's really. I, I think there there are two ways people react to this movie. I'll probably just edit this out, but uh, you either get enraged and think, "Yeah, you deserved exactly what you got," and the other half are like terrified that mm-hmm. you know an orca could be so. Dangerous, but you know, put anyone in a cage and see how they react, right? Yeah. Human or animal world.
0: Yeah. You know, I think one place that fear maybe comes up is sometimes we watch documentaries about whales all around the world, and there are orca populations all over. They're all different, they have different cultures, they eat different things. But you see videos of orcas, you know, hunting a baby humpback whale or, um, hunting a seal or something. And that seems scarier. And my daughter will say, but those aren't our orcas, right? Our orcas eat salmon. And so that is, you know, that seems less scary. But all those whales need to eat and, you know, they don't go after people. You got to respect their space. Um, What was the most
1: fun thing about, Well, what do you find is the most fun thing about writing nonfiction for kids?
0: All of it. But yeah, especially the research, learning new things, trying to figure out what questions I have, what questions kids might have, and how can I find some of those answers. Um getting to go out in the field with people who are doing the work and doing the science is pretty fun. So I got to go out on a boat with Dr. Giles and Eva the scat sniffing dog to try and trail behind some orcas and watch the dogs sniff out when they pooped and That's go so find cool. the poop and it was really fun and my husband and daughter were standing on the shore near where we were and so I got to wave to them and they got a much closer view of the orcas actually than we did from the boat because the scientists try and keep the boats far enough away that they don't disturb the whales but if you're on shore sometimes you can get a much closer look which is pretty fun and what's
1: the most difficult thing about writing middle grade non-fiction
0: mm, the most difficult um I mean, just figuring out kind of what to keep in there and what to cut, you know, it's all interesting to me, but you don't want the book to be super duper long and detailed. So how do you kind of provide the right level of information? And then something that other middle grade authors had alerted me to, but I found to be true is it can be quite a lot of work to gather all the photos for a book, you know, that's up to the author to do and you have to find the best photos and then get permission to use them which you know a lot of people were super generous with that you know letting me use the photos for free in the book but you still have to get them to take the time to sign the form that makes it official and I had you know at least 20 different sources sending me photos so it was kind of a fun um, scavenger hunt to find the best photos but then actually the tracking who sent me the forms and getting that all done was a little tedious
1: so how like you know we're in the internet age so things are I think maybe easier to track down but how do you find all those photos because some of them were
0: like deep archived into the 70s Hmm. yeah the Washington State Archives they were super helpful it took me a while to find the right person but once I did he just put together a drive of photos for me to pick from and did a ton of work for me and then I got to go through and figure out which ones were the best ones and just check what the caption, you know, permission should say. So that was great and then the there's some federal government photos in there, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, you know, any of their photos are free to use with permission and it's really important to use the permit number too. So for For the endangered orcas, you know, if you have a photo that was taken of them under a research permit, then anytime you use the photo, you have to make sure to use that permit number, Um, especially if it was taken. You know, research boats can sometimes get closer than other boats if they've got that permit. So thank um, you
1: for explaining that, because I saw that in the photos and I didn't know what it was. I mean, I made an assumption, but I didn't really know why it was there.
0: Yeah, it's required, but I was also kind of trying to signal that, you know, it's not okay to take your boat and get up really close to an orca to get a great photo like this. You know, these are taken by trained professionals who have a permit to do that because boats getting close can cause problems for the whales.
1: Yeah. And drones have certainly helped with the, you know, over the air images, things that we would never have seen 15, 10, 15
0: years ago. Yeah. I love those drone photos and videos so much because you can't see what's happening below the waves any other way. And yeah, you get to see them chasing a fish or snuggling up to their mom or, you know, playing. And if you're just on, on a boat or on shore, you know, I think that what I heard was the whale, you know, they come up to breathe or to breach and that's about 5% at most of their time is in a place where you could see them from the surface so the drone footage gives you this view into the bulk of their day which is pretty awesome
1: did anything that you wrote not make it into the book is there a story that
0: that did not get make the final cut I'm trying to remember what was what was taken out um I mean I think for a lot of things I wanted to go into more detail than I did or I would have liked to but I knew that I needed to not not go too into the weeds on things. You know, one of the things I'm involved with now is this program called Quiet Sound, where they're trying to get, reduce the impacts of ships and ship noise on the orcas. There's just a ton of ship traffic in this part of the country with the ports of Seattle and Tacoma and Vancouver. And the noise from those ships interferes with the orcas' ability to communicate and echolocate to find salmon. So I'm involved with a program called Quiet Sound that's working to to address that problem. And I think some of this happened after I had written the first draft of the book, but they did a program to ask the ships to voluntarily slow down when they're in the the waters that the orcas tend to be in. And just in the first uh, pilot test, they had two thirds of all those container ships and other ships slow down just to make them quieter. And so kind of success stories like that are great. So it was, it was hard to find, you know, okay, there's a point where we have to copy edit this book. We have to get ready to go out to print <laughs> new things are happening that I really want to put in that are exciting or hopeful, but you know, I, I can't keep messing with the book. We've got to wrap it up.
1: How adaptive are orcas to changes in their environment?
0: They seem very resilient and, and adaptive. Um, you know, but they can only do so much. So one of the things I get asked a lot is why don't they start eating something else if salmon are scarce and other orcas are eating herring or seals or sharks. Um, But what I found is that all the orca populations are specialists. And when things are good, being a specialist makes you much better at finding food and catching it than you would be. You know, if you are a whale that eats anything, you know, you're pretty good at it. But if you can specialize in how to hunt, how to find and hunt one specific kind of prey, then that's really good. I'm sorry, really good. But if that one kind of prey becomes scarce, then you're in trouble. And so basically the Southern residents have learned exactly how to find salmon and how to hunt them. You know, they're really good at echolocating. They communicate with each other constantly where are the salmon they share the salmon they catch if they applied those same skills to trying to hunt a harbor seal they would be no good at it they would be too loud they would tip off the harbor seal they wouldn't be able to cooperate to catch it you know it just wouldn't work and when mother orcas feed their young you know they're here here's a piece of salmon this is what food is if they never share a piece of anything else the young um, orca is never going to think of anything else as being food. So it's just, it's like, they would be no good at it. And they wouldn't even consider it to be food because they haven't been taught that by their mothers. So I think that, you know, they are resilient and adaptable to a large extent, but not far enough to necessarily just be able to switch to a different food type that might help them out right now. Did you
1: find that once you were finished Superpod, that your ideas were coming more frequently for the next books? Because I know you've got your next work is called This Book is Full of Holes, picture yes. book. I want to yes. know more about that. But did you find
0: that ideas started to come even faster? I think in some ways, but it also maybe gave me a a stronger filter for just realizing how many hours I had to spend thinking about this topic. You know, it's really important that it be something I'm really passionate about that I want to spend hundreds of hours on and that I will be able to keep that energy level up. So there are ideas that I find interesting that I would love to write about, but do I love them enough to spend that many hours in order to write a middle grade nonfiction book? Maybe not. So I'm kind of, I'm thinking that through right now. But yeah, the picture book, this book of, is full of holes is going to be coming out from Peachtree next year. And it's um, it's just exploring all different kinds of holes in our world, everything from potholes and sinkholes to the little tiny hole in the airplane window that you might wonder about if you're sitting there looking out the window to, you know, blue holes in the ocean and holes that animals make. And it it just was really fun to write. Um And just look around you and see like there are useful holes and problematic holes and all kinds of things everywhere. So I think that one will be really fun. What's the biggest difference between writing picture books and middle grade nonfiction? So definitely the role of the illustrator is huge. So for that book with Peachtree, there's just an awesome illustrator, Robert McGank, who's adding a ton of humor and clarification through the pictures so I can keep the words really tight and let the illustrations do a lot of the work in making it really engaging and clear and so that you know that complement of text and illustration is really it's really fun and I love seeing how it just is turning out even better than I could have expected and you know that whole part is um is in his court and he's doing an amazing job and it's just really fun to see it. So with the middle grade nonfiction, you know, a lot of more of it's in my control, but it's also more work for me to do. Um, And I like the partnership aspect of a picture book a lot.
1: Let's get a bit luxury now and tell us what, as consumers, like, what do we do? How can we help? Do we eat less salmon? Do we make better choices about salmon? We want to eat? Do we fight for, you know, dam removal? What do we do? Mm -hmm.
0: So many things. There's so many things you can do. Yeah. In terms of being a consumer, you know, buying choosing sustainable seafood i look to seafood watch which rates different kinds of seafood and when it comes to salmon personally i choose to eat sockeye salmon just because orcas don't eat very much sockeye salmon they like king salmon or chinook salmon because it's the got the most calories um trying to think about where we're buying things from so we talked about those container ships coming in you know they're coming in because we're buying stuff that needs to be shipped from around the world so when can we buy things that are more local Um, avoiding buying things with a lot of plastic packaging and single-use plastic items just because that, you know, uses a lot of greenhouse gases to make it and a lot too much of it ends up out in the environment. Um, In terms of whales specifically, we've adopted an orca from the Whale Museum's adoption program, you know, symbolic adoption. You get to pick which one. We adopted one named Echo, and that money goes to important research and education work and boater education Um, And then because I work on policy, I always have to put in a plug for contacting elected officials and asking them to do things like put more funding into salmon habitat restoration and endangered species protection and uh, making sure that the whales have enough space from boats. So, you know, we can do things in our personal lives on a day to day basis. But for some of those big changes, we do need legislators to make policy change and they need to hear from people that we want that.
1: Yeah. And what is, is whale watching okay? Like, should we feel guilty about heading out in a boat to watch the whales that may or may not show up because it's
0: not up to us. It's up to them. (laughs) Yeah. So what I recommend is, um, whenever possible watching them from shore. So there's this great thing called the whale trail that's all up and down the West coast with places where you can see a lot of marine life, including whales from shore, okay folks get your summer travel planner
1: ready because the whale trail is incredible from the north end of bc to the southern tip of california there are over 100 sites where you can just watch the whales from shore through washington state oregon it's surprising how many places you can just stand and watch the whales. I'll post a link in the show notes to the website, thewhaletrail.org, where you can see all the sites and find out when the optimum times for visiting will be.
0: And boat-based whale watching is is fine, but there are a lot of other whale species that are better off and that are not really impacted by boats. And so Ideally, the tours would focus on those whales. Um, Here in Washington State, there is a whale watching license program that does limit kind of the number of boats that can be around the endangered orcas. So that's really good. But there are humpbacks in the area. There are these transient orcas. There are a lot of other species to see. So um, they, you know, they're doing better and they're not as impacted by boat presence. I want to
1: thank you for your time today. Superpod is super engaging and interesting. And I learned <laughs> so much and it's a great read for anybody
0: of any age. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. I tried to, you know, it's especially geared towards kids, but I did have in my mind the whole time that hopefully teens and adults will also enjoy this. You know, I think it's a, it's a fun read with a lot of um, hope and hopefully inspiration for people to go try and see a whale or do something to help. Well,
1: that brings us to the end of another episode of What Were You Thinking? You can pick up a copy of Superpod wherever books are sold, and you can learn more about Nora Nickham by visiting her website, noranickham.com. I also invite you to have a look at my books and visit my website, danagoldstein.ca. Once again, thanks for giving me your ears.
0: Come on, little fella. Come on. Dory,
1: I'm a little fella. I don't think that's a little fella.
0: Oh, 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 big fella. Big fella. Whale. Okay. Maybe he only speaks whale. Uh, Dory. To find what are you doing? Song. What are you doing? Are you sure you speak whale? Can you? Heaven knows what you're saying!